I'm Eric Kaplan, a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy. And I'm Taylor Carmen, a philosophy professor at Barnard College, Columbia University. I teach classes and write stuff about existentialism and the meaning of life. And you are a person who is listening to terrifying questions and how not to be terrified by them. And that is a philosophy podcast where Taylor and I look at terrifying questions and think about them and try to find our way to a place where we and you can feel courageous. All right. Well, I'm ready. Uh, what's our question? The question this week is, are we trapped by tradition? And we're really fortunate when we discuss are we trapped by tradition that we have a special guest. And our special guest is Professor Brian W. Van Norden. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a longtime listener, first-time guest. Oh, that's fantastic to have you there. And that's a traditional thing to say when uh, on the radio <laughs> show. Um, uh, so uh, Professor Brian W. Van Norden is James Monroe Taylor Chair in Philosophy at Vassar College uh, in the USA and Chair Professor in the School of Philosophy at Wuhan University, which is in China. He has published 10 books on Chinese and comparative philosophy, including Introduction to Classical Chinese Philosophy, Taking Back Philosophy, A Multicultural Manifesto, Readings in Later Chinese Philosophy, Han to the 20th Century, Classical Chinese for Everyone, and most recently, the third edition of Readings in Classical Chinese Philosophy. Professor Van Norden's video lecture series on Chinese philosophy is freely available online as a TED-Ed video on Confucius he wrote, which has over a million views. And I think we're really fortunate to have you on because you are someone who makes an effort to, like you're very deeply versed and formidably knowledgeable in philosophy, but you also make an effort to connect that with the public discourse. And you also, on a personal note, you really helped me out during the pandemic. I was getting all bent out of shape and terrified by some philosophical questions. And I reached out to you on Twitter and you were kind enough to say, why don't we just talk about them? And you straightened me out. So you helped me get through a hard patch using philosophy. So thank you. And um, now we're going to do something about terror and terrifying questions for a wider audience rather than just me, which I think is good. Well, terrific. It's not very often a philosopher gets to actually solve a problem for somebody. So I'm glad I was able to do that. Right. Although when you make problems for people, do you think you're solving their problem of of like not knowing what their problem what their problem is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is not a new point. It goes back to Socrates, but sometimes just making people aware that issues are more complicated than they realize or making them understand that they don't know some of the things that they think they know can actually be a very beneficial act for them. I think philosophy has made more problems than solved them, but I think that's a good thing. So Taylor, you don't think that the person who doesn't know what his problems are, that that's a problem? That's one big problem, yeah, yeah. There's a whole little bunch of baby problems nested in there that need to be let out, maybe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let the pigeons yeah. loose. So <laughs> I was thinking about this tradition thing. Are we trapped by tradition? And it strikes me that, like, there's a bit of a generational fight going on. And I see it on Twitter. I don't know how much it is in real life, but I do see it on Twitter. And it's almost like the two sides of the fight are liberals and radicals. And the liberals seem to think we have some democratic traditions and we should stick to them in order to make the world a better place. And the radicals seem to think we are stuck in those traditions and they're cloaking or hiding a lot of injustice. And what we ought to do is break out of those traditions to something better and fairer. So it strikes me that that's a really hard issue because I find myself very, um, like I can't make up my mind. Like I can easily think, 
oh yeah, we could easily be stuck by all sorts of traps and limitations of our tradition and we need to break out of them. And then I can also think, oh no, the people who think we need to break out of everything are just going to create this sort of chaos and no one will be able to know what's true or what's right without some traditional definitions of these ideas. So I, I can't figure it out. So I'm happy that the two of you are going to help at least straighten me out. And at least my sort of selfish uh, needs will be met and maybe people at home too. Who knows? What do you think? <laughs> well, I'll jump in. One way of thinking about it is you get this image in some works like in Descartes' Meditations where if you just sit around and think by yourself and you just reject tradition and you reject what other people have told you, just thinking by yourself, you can come up with the truth about the way the world works and you can put your knowledge on a firm foundation. And so the real key to thinking is rejecting tradition and not relying on the opinions of anybody else, just trusting your own views. And that's a very attractive conception of rationality. Uh, the problem is, at least in my opinion, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because uh, for a variety of reasons, when you start thinking, you're going to think using concepts that you've inherited from your language and the things that you think are worth questioning or not worth questioning are also going to be things that are going to be given to you by your previous tradition. I mean, ironically, Descartes, who said we shouldn't, you know, just accept traditional ideas, plagiarized Augustine in mm. one of his key concepts. Uh, and a it lot of probably the, public it, domain by that point, though, wasn't well, it? Right? In fairness, yeah, I, I think the Augustine estate was not going to make any okay, money off okay. of off of Descartes. Uh, but so there's a sense to which no, you can't escape tradition just because even if you come up with a new idea, it's a new idea that in some way you got to by relying on earlier ideas. To pick one more historical example, Galileo is famous as this person who challenged the Aristotelian worldview and you know observed the world and just came up with these you know groundbreaking scientific insights. Uh, but the background to Galileo was the impetus theorists of the Middle Ages who were trying to figure out how to explain certain phenomena like projectile motion that you know, Aristotle didn't have a good account of, but they were working within the Aristotelian framework. And they didn't come up with Galileo's notions, but they laid the groundwork for them by giving earlier analyses and tentative steps towards what became the Galilean framework. And so even in that cases of genuine revolution, you're always having a revolution by developing ideas that were there in some nascent form earlier. Okay, I'm going to straw man you a little bit here just so that I can understand the view sort of as a step towards greater understanding. So are you saying that there have never been new ideas ever? Because that can't be right. I mean, in Olduvai Gorge, they didn't have a lot of ideas. So there must have been new ideas. Human beings must have the capacity to come up with radically new ideas, right? Because those Australopithecines they had hardly no idea. I mean, they were not very educated. So well, we don't know so, that. We don't so know. how did? Well, okay. That I mean, I suppose yeah. one. Yeah, they had some one, ideas. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't well, know if Plato mm -hmm. thought that even in Olduvai Gorge, they had all the ideas. They no. just need to figure out that they had them. But but you don't think that, do you? No, no. I don't. I don't mean to suggest that. But you know, when you study the history of philosophy, as I do, and as I know Taylor also does, one of the things you you notice more and more is how often a revolutionary thinker's ideas are to some extent anticipated by earlier thinkers. And the thinkers who maybe to us seem the most revolutionary, people like Plato, 
Well, one of the reasons Plato seems so revolutionary is we only have fragmentary knowledge of what his intellectual background was. Or, uh, you know, Homer, I'm, I'm just struck by how polished the quality of the writing is in, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, and the, the dramatic structure of scenes in the Odyssey is so impressive. But we don't know who was Homer a junior writer to or a junior bard to before, you know, so a are, lot are of you things... saying revolutionary ideas are impossible? Because that can't be right. I mean, when people were just sitting around, like collecting nuts and stuff, they didn't have drama, they didn't have philosophy. And now they now we do. So somebody must have come up with it. No, no, I'm not saying that there's nothing that's revolutionary, because clearly there are revolutionary ideas. I'm saying even when you have a revolutionary idea, it doesn't come into existence out of nothing. Uh -huh. Out of nothing comes nothing. Okay. You know, a revolutionary idea comes out of a pre-existing context. And even if what you're doing is rejecting an earlier idea, there's a way in which you're then dependent on that idea. You know, when Marx turns Hegel on his head and says, oh, what an idiot Hegel was, you know, for not seeing that it's really the material relations of production that drive everything, not ideas. Yeah, but he's not going to have that idea unless Hegel's there before and Feuerbach's there to give his critique of, of Hegel. That doesn't mean that Marx isn't revolutionary in a lot of ways. And I think revolutionary movements often overstate their originality. It's sort of built into their agenda to bury the past or bury their dependence on the past. I think that was true of the scientific revolution, Bacon and Descartes. And Galileo had contempt for Aristotle and Aristotelianism. They would just say, let's get rid of that. I mean, it had been around for centuries and centuries. And so it's understandable they were kind of sick of it and they were ready for something new. I think Harold Bloom has this idea of anxiety of influence that a lot of really great new works have built into them a kind of strategy of concealing their dependency on the past. But it's definitely possible for something really, really strikingly new to come along. I think it's just that what we think of as strikingly new is just less dependent on the past than stuff that's old hat and already familiar. Okay. My worry is that if radicals overstate the newness of the new, conservatives under, understate uh, that they're sort of built into the conservative hermeneutic is to understate the newness of the new. Oh, um, I think it may be that, but I think in a lot of cases, there's a kind of interesting sort of tacit agreement among the terrified conservatives and their new radical revolutionaries, because I think a lot of conservatives are terrified that what's new is really new, and it's going to steer us off course and destroy our relation to the past, and they take it very seriously. There may be a kind of alliance of agreement about how crazy new this new stuff oh, really is and it's yeah. dangerous for that reason yeah. yeah yeah i think that's a good point and also i think it's worth stressing once you realize the extent to which we can't escape tradition and we're always just building off of earlier ideas there's a temptation to take that in a radically conservative direction and say aha well now that you've admitted we can't escape tradition yeah. there's no point trying to do anything new or anything radical that doesn't follow. Yeah. You oh, know, so why uh, doesn't it follow? Well, like, for example, consider Thomas Aquinas, one of my favorite ex examples. For a certain kind of contemporary conservative, Thomas Aquinas is a paradigm of a guy who had it all figured out, and he's the one we really want to follow. But Thomas Aquinas was a radical 
in his era. And students practically rioted at the University of Paris, which later became the Sorbonne, because Aquinas wanted to teach these newfangled Aristotelian ideas that had been reintroduced to Europe from the Islamic world. And in the European universities at the time of Aquinas, a kind of Platonized Christianity devised from Augustine was the standard view. And people said about Aristotelian teaching that it's not part of our tradition and it's watering down the curriculum and it's it's not really Christian and it can't be reconciled. With... Wasn't he condemned by the Bishop of Paris? Uh, I, I don't know that for sure, but it's that's the kind of thing that would have happened. Certainly a lot of people didn't like Aquinas. But what is Aquinas doing? He's taking these earlier ideas and he's bringing them into dialogue and he's developing a system that holds all the pieces together in kind of a compelling way. It is revolutionary in a certain way, but it's a revolution in synthesizing ideas that are already in existence and showing how they can give more satisfactory answers to the problems that we face. But then if you look at that and say, oh, okay, that was the answer right there. We shouldn't come up with new ideas or we shouldn't further expand the canon to bring in other thinkers who weren't in the canon anymore. That doesn't follow. You're not being a true Thomist if you say the dialogue is over or we can't expand the canon anymore or we can't engage in a broader dialogue. Right. I suppose if we have a tradition of revolution, then the only way to be traditional is to be revolutionary. And the only way to be revolutionary is traditional. That seems to be the position you're pushing, right? Yeah. In a way, you were saying a moment ago, maybe we could say something about the Chinese thought. You know, Confucius is, in a sense, you could portray him as an ultra-traditionalist. And that, I'm not saying that that's a crazy thing to do. But I often like to say, for thinkers like Confucius are more like thinkers like Martin Luther King Jr. They're not conservatives in the Burkean sense. Like Edmund Burke was like, you know, we shouldn't have any fast change. Change should be slow. It should be very gradual. People like Martin Luther King Jr. or Confucius are saying things are so messed up in the contemporary world. But you know what? There's this wisdom in our classical tradition that we claim to honor. And if we actually took seriously the wisdom in our own classical tradition, it would lead to a radical re-envisioning of society and our relations with one another. And so there's a way in which if you actually understand, I think, most interesting traditions, that's why they keep being interesting to us. They're potentially revolutionary if we took seriously their consequences. That's really cool. I, I want to interrupt you just for a second so we can take a break and then we'll come back. I have a question about this Chinese context. Okay, that was a good break. So so here's my question, Brian. Like, it's been a while since I've taken a Chinese history class. But my sense was at some point in Chinese history, the Confucian literati thought they had it all figured out. And then Westerners arrived with different ways of doing art, radically different approaches to philosophy, radically different approaches to science, and radically different approaches to how to run society. And, and these ideas were not part of their tradition. They were radically new, and they hated them. <laughs> um, so is that possible that some person that we have not yet met or some group of people will just come in with radically new ideas? Like, I feel like on your position, that couldn't happen because every new idea is really an old idea under the surface. But I feel like those Western people in the harbor had new ideas. They were new to these 
Confucian literati. Is that wrong? No, I think you're right. There certainly were revolutionary and new to a greater extent than any ideas that had been developed internally by the tradition. But even in cases like that, in order to understand what another tradition is doing, you have to start from the concepts in your own tradition, and then you have to figure out how to link some of the concepts you have to some of the concepts in this alien tradition, or you wouldn't be able to understand them. Uh, Hillary Putnam, uh, I know you guys know this, is a famous philosopher at Harvard in the 20th century and, and quite a character. And How was he point, a character? I, I didn't know he was a character. I just oh, read he what he had to say. What was <laughs> What were some of the eccentric things he did? Well, I just read his article about Twin Earth. I, some of this stuff I only know secondhand. I haven't researched mm -hmm. his life, but I'm told that he went through a period where he was a Maoist. Interesting. He was, he was calling for like the the radical overthrow. A of, Harvard uh, Maoist. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, there there was there were Maoist cults, you know, around the world in the the time of the Cultural Revolution, in part because people didn't have direct access to what was actually going on in China at the time. And some people naively accepted the glowing accounts of how everything was going great in the cultural mm -hmm. revolution and everybody was having a great time. I, I met him at Taylor's, I think met him a few times, uh, you know, before he passed away. But I remember, I remember you pressing him pretty hard at a, when he was giving a talk at Stanford. Remember that? I, I pressing him about probably the analytic synthetic distinction or something like that. I can't remember <laughs> what, but, um, as I recall, he was saying that certain views were just ridiculous. And I said, well, Professor Putnam, no one can refute a sneer. Oh, you did say that. Yes. Oh, sweet. I did. Yes. That's right. I did. I, you did. Yes. Yes. And there was a, a hush fell over the audience. Yes. <laughs> <And> there was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a dramatic moment. <laughs> it was a dramatic moment. But I, I, I do admire him as an intellectual. And, you know, and actually Taylor and I is going to come out our old friends. Yeah. We go way back. Yeah, we go way back to graduate school. Um, How did you meet? Do you remember your first impression when you were young scholars of I don't each other? The, I personally don't remember the first time, but I, I do remember, I think it was you, Taylor, uh -oh. who offered <laughs> to pay me $100 <laughs> if when Hillary Putnam was giving his talk in the question session, I said, so did you climb Mount Everest before or after you wrote Word and Object? <laughs> <laughs> And word and object, of course, is by Willard Quine. How did you spend the money? <laughs> I was an idiot and didn't take oh, it. Oh, you I didn't do it. No. I, I kind of thought as a graduate student, does Taylor have $100? Uh, smart. <laughs> smart. Trust but verify. Um, that, that's called Bayesianism, right? It sounds yeah. plausible, but I yeah. don't remember that particularly. But, but the, that's funny. The reason yeah. I, I brought up, uh, sorry, Putnam, the reason I brought him mm -hmm. up was that at one point he was talking about cross-cultural understanding. And I guess someone said to Putnam, you know, well, I mean, how come, you know, we have to start understanding other cultures on the basis of our own conceptual scheme? And in his inimitable style, Putnam said, we should use somebody else's conceptual scheme, <laughs> which is it's a pretty good one liner. Uh -huh. Right. Okay. I'm not sure if I believe what I'm about to say, but but this does worry me because I feel like it's ignoring the possibility that we can die and be born again as different people. And I feel like that's a thing that could be true, that it could be that ancient classical civilization encountered Judaism and Christianity, and it was completely different. And what they were called upon to do by those preachers was not to figure out how Christianity was a kind of a souped up form of stoicism, but to radically change their emotional lives and just become different. And I kind of consider this to be Heidegger's view, that I think he thinks there are these sort of radical breaks and that it's not all 
figuring out a way to use your existing resources to get what you always wanted, but to become a different person who wants different things. What do you guys think of that? I don't think that is exactly Heidegger's view. Actually. It's not. Okay. I think we should think more about some particular examples because Let's I was it. thinking about Martin Luther in the 16th century who instituted this very radical break from the Catholic tradition. But in a way, it was going back to what he thought Jesus was really saying in St. Paul and, and justification by faith and all that stuff. And even what Jesus was doing, that's pretty radical. That's pretty new, right? By any standards, the closer you look at it, the more it looks like he was a Jewish apocalyptic prophet. And it was absolutely rooted in a tradition and got transformed in some kind of way. Um, we talked about Galileo and Descartes. So I think we need to think about, you know, what's the most revolutionary, radical break from tradition you're familiar with? A lot of the ones I just mentioned were already close to being incomprehensible to the contemporaries at the time for various reasons, at least at various stages. The Romans didn't know what to do with the Christians. Well, I think the transition from the classical world to Christianity is pretty radical. Yeah. That's one I would put forward as a an example where people, like I say, they're not being like, hey, this is this great new way of being a Stoic, but more like this is a new way of being a person. Yeah, but it wasn't entirely new. I mean, I agree with you that it's absolutely radical, but I guess I'm kind of allying with Brian here that mm -hmm. the closer you look at it, the more you realize it didn't just fall out of the sky as something like the obelisk in 2001. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was connected first in its early stages to Judaism, but then once it got more universalized to Gentiles and everybody around, it was based on ideas that were familiar about compassion. It had to be tapping into something that people were already receptive to or else it wouldn't have made any sense and it would have died out. Yeah, and, and this isn't to deny that there are substantial differences between the civilization of, say, Europe in the Middle Ages of Christianity and the Roman Empire or between the civilization now and the civilization in the Middle Ages. And so you can have incremental changes in which you're choosing to emphasize certain ideas or you're following out, you choose to follow the logical implications out of a certain way of seeing things. And that can lead to a big difference, a really major difference. There's something very tempting, and people still succumb to this today, of thinking, well, you know, the way we got to the modern world is after millennia of idiots mm -hmm. who just couldn't think for themselves, and all they ever did was just read some dusty old books, finally somebody sat down and opened their eyes and looked at the way the world was and finally thought for themselves, and boom, that's how we get modern science and democracy and everything's great. But that's actually a very dangerous view because it implies that the way the world looks to you, if you just open your eyes uninterpreted, is going to reveal the facts about the world to you. But the reality is everything you know about the world, you know, because you interpret it through certain conceptual schemes. And sometimes those conceptual schemes allow you to see the truth about the world. Sometimes they prevent you from seeing the truth about the world. You know, they give you these false fixities where you think, look, it has to be the case that there are only two genders because, well, that's what I was told in grade school. And, you know, that's what I see when I open my eyes. Well, you were trained to see the world that way. So that's why you think the world's that way. And the other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, in a way, we've been saying the revolutionaries or the radicals maybe uh, have an interest in overstating their originality. Traditionalists have a complementary interest in overstating their continuity with the past. 
understating their originality. Yeah, that's right. And you see this in our contemporary world, our political world. There's this term, conservative and conservatism, which is a grotesque misnomer, because what passes for conservatism in our political world has nothing to do with conserving anything. I mean, it's just, it's so rapacious and absolutely destroying and ignoring the past for the sake of future ambitious. Mm -hmm. It's not the Burkean kind of conservatism, I don't think. So what would it mean to be conservative? It would mean to be conserving something. But oftentimes people who pass themselves off as conservatives, I mean, religious fundamentalism is really a fake kind of relation to the past. It's usually a kind of made up invented past or nationalisms that appeal to some sort of glorious national past. It's usually a fiction. It's usually a propaganda construct. So in a way, I think what we're doing on both ends of the spectrum is to sort of question the way these positions get caricatured. In other words, we haven't located the point of conflict, I think, just by saying there's radical breaking from the past and then just adhering to the past. There's really no such thing as either of those things at an extreme. Mm -hmm. But there is something I think maybe we should think about what's dangerous about traditionalism, if we can just use that as a pin to mark this naive adherence to the past, as if the past is going to tell you how to relate to the past, which it won't. All right. What is dangerous about traditionalism and what should we do instead? So I have an idea that what's dangerous about it is that it underestimates the necessity for already. Now, this is what I take Heidegger's view to be already having a relation to the future, mm. which allows you then to appropriate the past in one way or the other. Because there's no such thing as just waiting for the past to tell you how to project into the future. You're already doing it. Well, how do we have a relationship to the future? Because it's not here yet. Uh, by being thrown into a world in which you didn't choose the past that's immediately, you know, situating your actions. So in a way, this is circling back to, I think, a point Brian was making, that you already are tied to the past, whether you like it or not. And this is the way in which you never really break free from something like tradition. Well, I, but I asked a different question. How can we relate to the future? What does it mean to be in relationship to something that doesn't exist yet? Well, I'm telling you, the only way to do it is to find yourself already thrown into a world in which there are various possible ways of relating to the future. Now, how you actually do it may be an unfathomable mystery, but you are doing it whether you like it or not. Every time you construct a sentence, you're projecting into some kind of meaning that you're anticipating. And That's very interesting. How does that work? Say a little bit more. I find this very interesting. The idea really is that the temporal form of your experience and your life, it's already kind of in place. In other words, it's like uh, John Hoagland always used to draw comparisons with chess. And if you abstract from the very first move and the end game, <laughs> the, ch the chess situation is there's always already a way the pieces are on the board mm -hmm. and you've got to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And the way you're dealing with it is by trying to figure out what move to make, mm -hmm. right? Where there are openings, challenges, threats, and so on. And both things are always going on at the same time. So that's the primordial situation. So you're not going to construct one out of the other. You're not going to say, we've got a past and then we make a future out of nothing, or we're radically freely projecting into a future with no past at all. Both of these things are happening on the ground in the moment. Now, a relation to history is going to be this next level of finding what Heidegger calls a heritage, only thanks to the fact that you're already projecting into some kind of possibility. So take Martin Luther King Jr. again. There's already black and white and north and south and states and you've got to deal with this somehow. That's what makes possible a relation to something like the civil rights movement. Then you can reach back into the past and find the phrases in the founding documents and, and recover that for the purpose you've already got, which is like further emancipation, further equality, 
That's the only way the past is ever going to really be recoverable for you, is if you're already facing problems, questions, pressing into possibilities in the situation you've already found yourself in. So in a way, yeah, well, go ahead, Brian. Yeah. No, no, I was just going to say, I agree with that. And I, I think a, another angle to think about it, I believe is, you know, I had this friend at Stanford who he taught the history of Christianity, but he was also a practicing Christian. And so a lot of students who were Christians flocked to his classes because, you know, they wanted to be taught the history of Christianity by a, a serious scholar of the Christian tradition. And the thing was, he taught how Christians over time had understood their own tradition in very different ways. And he said that he kept getting very sincere students who would come to him and say after class, yeah, but so who are the real Christians here? Yeah. Like, which is the correct interpretation of Christianity? And he would say, I can't tell you that. As a Christian, I can tell you what I think, but what I'm telling you is there's diversity within the Christian tradition. Christians have thought different things on these issues, and you've got to decide as a believing Christian what you think the tradition is and what that implies going forward. Well, hang on, but looking at it from the outside, did you just say that it's not part of Christianity to tell other people how to do Christianity? <laughs> well, my experience has been different that they love doing that yeah well again well ironically that's you know one of the differences within christianity is uh i mean again i i lived next door to a minister when i was in iowa i was in iowa for a few years and the minister next door said just so you know don't worry it's part of the beliefs of my sect that we don't actively proselytize people unless they ask us to talk about Christianity. And so it just shows you there's all this diversity. There are people who, I remember when I was an undergraduate, after I did all the, the first year stuff where you have to sign all, they had this thing where you had to sign all these forms and you know do all this paperwork. And then you'd go out the door and another person said, oh, there's one more form. And you know I filled it out and it turned out it was like a membership thing for a Christian group on campus. Oh. You know, and, and they, they had me signed up now for a meeting with one of their people. Right. You know, and I thought I was just like, oh, I'm supposed to fill out this form too. And it was right. And you thought they would be against lying. But yeah, <laughs> you think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bearing false witness. But you get all even like as I, I was gonna say in the when I teach Confucianism, it's interesting. Sometimes I get a reaction from heritage students, either students from China or Chinese American students, or you know, could be other parts of East Asia, and they'll say, Oh, this translation isn't right. And I'll say, well, my translation might be wrong, but almost everything I give you, I'm following some traditional Chinese view about what the text means. Now, I might be following a Chinese Confucian view that wasn't the one you were taught, but I am following a Chinese Confucian view because almost every view you could come up with, somebody in the 2,500-year history of Confucianism has come up with that view. Mm -hmm. And so I think for a lot of people... What's very difficult is recognizing the diversity of their own traditions when they've been taught a particular way of understanding the tradition, and the tradition's actually much more multifaceted and complex than they realized. So what is the mistake that the the bad traditionalist, I don't know what to call this person, the authoritarian traditionalist is making? Because I assume what they would say to you is, it so happens that in that vast diversity of the history of whatever it be, gender, religion, many, many people were wrong. And me and my teacher and his teacher were right. And you 
are confusing the issue by bringing up what a bunch of heretics said. And we did a lot of work figuring out who the heretics were and who the orthodox were. And we've got it. And young people should receive it. So what what do you say to that sort of person? I don't know what to call that person, but let's call them a I don't know authoritarian traditionalist. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Well, looking at specific cases, a lot of times mm-hmm. you'd say to that person, the view you're claiming is the traditional view would actually be heretical for many people in your tradition. But they would say, but those people were wrong. They were a bunch of heretics. So why do I care about what those people thought? Well, then I'd say, let's look at the actual evidence Uh and start to debate it. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kinds of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, that's probably a good word for them, yeah. Yeah, like classic fundamentalism is you know, largely resistant to like the kind of open dialogue over the tradition. And again, we get this this paradox or not a paradox, like a dilemma in our society, I find, where on the one hand, you have people often politically progressive or or radical, and they're like, the tradition's just stupid. We don't need it. I don't need to read those dumb old classical texts. So they don't. But then that abandons the classic texts and the tradition to the fundamentalists who now become the spokespeople for what they actually mean. And so people are robbed, the tradition is robbed of its voice and its diversity by the people who give a really simplistic account of it. And so a part of what I try to do in my teaching is trying to make people aware of the complexity and the richness of the traditions and the way they continue to inform people's thinking even today, and the fact that they're a lot more diverse than anybody on either the right or the left normally recognizes. Well, this approach kind of brings tears to my eyes of relief, because I feel like people do not need to be at daggers drawn and hating each other. Everyone can kind of relax and see that we're all part of this beautiful ongoing tradition, and that's great. I like it. What do you think, Taylor? Ah, well, but there's real conflicts too. So I think we just haven't quite located them. Well, let's let's talk, let's pick one. I was thinking about gender abolitionism as a possible thing we could talk about. But if you've got uh, a better one, we could okay. talk about a better one. I don't know if I do have a better one, but I just wanted to add a few sort of um, nuances to what we've already said, uh, which is that again, I think so-called conservatives are either unwittingly overestimating the clarity of the past. Like we know what was heresy and what was orthodox and we know what was right and wrong. And as you were saying before, we've settled those problems and why rehash them. And in a lot of cases, they weren't really settled at all. I mean, things changed and evolved. Now, I do think some questions have gotten settled. I mean, I do think there's been progress in science and medicine and and in some ways, I mean, technology like work works and what doesn't. So I, I believe that there's such a thing as progress and some things have genuinely been settled. But those are not the things that cultural conservatives are usually worried about because there's actually just a de facto consensus about them oftentimes. But I think sometimes the so-called conservatives are the ones who are actually the most radical, willfully and knowingly trying to bury the past and forget the past. And that's why they're defunding education and trying to sort of undermine the study of the humanities precisely because the really progressive view is to be open to the complexity of the past and to remember that and keep it in mind. You know, we had this recent sort of dust up about Confederate statues and monuments, you know, and there was this really completely crazy fiction that this was our heritage, you know, a part of the heritage of the South. These are very recent monuments, some of them made in the 20th century. A lot of Confederate flags became very popular in the 1940s and 50s. The, The history behind it is kind of fake. A lot of it is. Uh, Somebody had this wonderful quip at the time saying, you know, if you're really interested in preserving the past and you're worried about these statues, you might be really interested in the existence of books 
<laughs> um, I mean, try to learn about the past by going around and staring at some statues, right? <laughs> so it's a kind of a crazy view about the transmission of culture. And when people say, oh, my God, you can't rewrite the past, you have to rewrite the past. The past is only the past by being constantly rewritten. So these fundamentalists yeah. are very interested in children. They tend to stoke moral panics about children. Yes, not an accident. And I wonder if this is related to a view that they may have, that the really important moment of transmitting culture is a preliterate moment mm. where you get a sense of what a man and a woman is mm -hmm. as a four-year-old, not as a 15-year-old reading the history of gender, but it kind of gets into your bodily comportment at a pre-rational pre-literate uh, level. What do you think of that about that? Because one of the things that troubles me about that is I think it's probably true, mm -hmm. but it also seems to be something that people who I politically don't like also think is true. And I always that always unnerves me because mm -hmm. uh, I think you can tell a person by the company they keep. <laughs> well, I, I think one thing to keep in mind, and Jason Stanley points this out in his uh, terrific book, How Fascism Works, is that we see repeatedly in history, especially in connection with far-right movements, one of the classic movements is to accuse people on the other side of being perverts, mm -hmm. you know, being child molesters or pedophiles or things like that. And of, of course, the horror is things like that actually do happen. There are pedophiles, there are child molesters. And many of them are religious conservatives. Ironically, yeah. Worth saying, yeah. But this move, it like this was a classic move that the Nazis made in the Weimar mm -hmm. Republic. You know, they were, this was during a period when you had leading people developing serious research into human sexuality and the variety of ways in which human sexuality expresses itself. And the Nazis condemned this as perverted. And they said, well, you know, you know, all those people, the communists and the Jews, you know, they're all a bunch of child molesters and perverts. And that becomes a rallying cry for the far right in the United States today. And the difficulty is, if you try to speak out against it, people are like, oh, so you don't have a problem with child molesters? You don't have a problem with perverts? Right. And that's not a bug. That's a feature. Exactly. They do that rhetoric in order to terrify people that if you disagree with them, you'll be tarred with a brush, yeah. with that brush. And meanwhile, you know, child beauty pageants in which young right. children are... Are forced to wear makeup and wear adult style clothing, which seems fairly insalubrious to me, are extremely common in the United States and nobody seems to have a problem with them. So there's kind of a you know hypocrisy here. So yes, I, yes. I think it's it's a it's a dangerous trend that we're seeing of politically weaponizing children in selective ways mm -hmm. and caring about their well-being in selective ways as a political tool rather than looking globally at like, well, what kind of problems do children face, like gun violence in schools or children not having school lunches or children having access to differential qualities of education because of mm -hmm. what their zip code is. Those are serious problems if you really care about children. Right. If you care about children. Right. It's exactly right. It, it, it makes me think about when people are like, I'm terribly worried about trans women committing prison rape. And it's like, well, has that ever happened? And if you're genuinely worried about prison rape, which is a huge problem in this country, mm -hmm. that's not how to address it. it Maybe to address the more common cases of it. It makes me think you're not genuinely interested in that. You're just looking for any stick to beat a beleaguered minority. So I did want to use an example because I find that the, um, in order to have a future, you need to have a past. In order to have a past, you need to have a future you care about. I find that position that the two of you are pushing. I love it. 
I love it a lot. So I'm trying to figure out how it works in a particular example. And I was thinking of gender abolitionism. Like, let's take two people, the conservative and the radical. And the conservative says, my mom and dad had two genders. My mom was a woman. My dad was a man. I was a boy. And now uh, I'm a man. And then the radical says, gender is, is a prison. I'm non-binary. You're wrong. You're oppressing me by saying this because I'm neither a man nor a woman. And then the conservative says, hey, 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 why are you making me think about something? Uh, you're being overly intellectual. I know I'm a man and I know my dad was a man. and I know my mom was a woman. Why are you coming at me? And then the discussion descends into mutual incomprehension and fury. So let's take a little break and then let's come back because I really like the philosophical approach the two of you developed. And I want to see how it works on the road for this issue of gender abolitionism versus gender traditionalism, let's call it. Okay, we're back. Let, what do you think? Um, we've discussed the notion that to have a, a future, you need a meaningful past that you care about. And to have a meaningful past, you, you need to be aware of the diversity in the past and be oriented to the future. And now let's look at a debate between two people that I'm calling the, um, the gender traditionalist and the gender abolitionist. How do we apply this philosophical perspective to that issue? That's a good question. I, I'm wading into deep waters here, and I'm not I'm no kind of expert about this. I'm probably behind the curve about the discussion of it. So let me just sort of put a few things on the table. Mm -hmm. One is that gender has always been, as far as we know, <laughs> part of human experience and human culture. So in a way, as radical as some of these new ideas may sound at the moment, there's a way in which it's nothing new. I mean, all cultures have had a variety of sexual orientations, what we call sexual orientations, sexual identities, genders. It's always been complicated. So in a way, that's not really new. Mm -hmm. So just as a marker here, no matter how unprecedented this may all seem at the moment, it really isn't because a lot of this stuff has just been sort of in the closet or swept under the rug or not discussed or recognized. Do either of you know anything about Archilochus? Because Archilochus was a member of some sort of, he was a, a early Greek uh, lyric poet. And I believe he was a member of some sort of um, gender bending religious organization. We have to have an Archilochus uh, podcast. But anyway, um, go on. I was going to say, just you know, piggybacking on what Taylor was saying, there is an interpretation of the, the account in Genesis uh, in the creation of humans. If you read it carefully, you have two separate accounts of the creation of the world. So if you want to take this seriously, one account says, God created humans, male and female created he them, in, in one English translation. And then you get a second account where Adam's created first, and Eve is taken from uh, Adam's rib. And there is a traditional reading where, oh, okay, so God created humans as uh, hermaphrodites, I know that's a proper term to use now, but as having both male and female sexual parts, and then taking Eve apart was a matter of separating the two genders. Mm -hmm. And that just shows you the diversity that if you actually look at the tradition, this is a view that serious traditional scholars defended. Well, it also seems that God, although sometimes discussed in the tradition as a father, which is 
a little weird because how can you create just as a father is also sometimes said to be non-binary to transcend human distinctions of gender and the human being is created in the Tselem Elohim in the image of God so that would seem to be grist for saying that gender is something that we can transcend or, or avoid or or reconfigure one point that I think often gets overlooked in the public discussions on this is uh, I think a lot of people just say, well, look, this is another one of those things where you philosophers are making this too complicated. It's really simple. And thank you, science solved this problem for us. Some people have XX chromosomes and some people have XY chromosomes, and that determines your gender right there. And that's wrong already, <laughs> because the fact is there are people who have XXY chromosomes and there are people who have XYY chromosomes. And it turns out that in a modern, like even college level biochemistry lab, it's almost trivially easy to determine what someone's chromosomes are. So, you know, I was talking to a, a chemist. I said, well, it better be really fun to do like a thing where people check their own chromosomes. And they said, oh, yeah, we never do that. Because there are people who have identified as a certain gender their entire life, and they don't know that they don't have the chromosomes that match that gender. Now I'm curious to know what chromosomes I have. You made me want to look in Pandora's box. Yeah, but, but that's just the thing is if you people think like, oh, so gender is it's binary, it's written into, you know, our chromosomes. No, it is not. It depends on how you're treated and, you know, how you're raised as an adult and how those chromosomes interact with a bunch of other environmental factors. Right. So so okay, so one thing we will say in applying this view is that the traditionalists uh, who are like, well, I, my mom, and, it was simple enough for my mom and dad, it's simple enough for me, are just wrong. And, and and one of the things that's interesting about it is like the policy seems to be if you want to use a public restroom, you should subject yourself to a chromosome test. Like this is not a traditional <laughs> I view. I think that's in the Bible, isn't it? I think so, yeah. I think it's Leviticus. <laughs> I mean, yeah, actually, yeah. when I was growing up, no one checked I, you could just use it. And this new regime, which is supposed to bring us back to the good old days, is actually a, we a weird new dystopian idea. Even the idea of, and, and I like the way we do things now, but I even the idea that you have gender-specific restrooms, that's a kind of modernist idea, right? Traditionally, you didn't have gender-specific baths. Right. You didn't have gender-specific. You had a bush. The bush, or even after, like they developed public baths and things, you know, these were men and women would bathe in public baths. And so the notion of having gender specific restrooms is a fairly recent development historically. And the fact is, if you identify as a man, you've had transgender people in the men's room with you. If you identify as a woman, you've had transgender people in the restroom with you and you just haven't noticed because it doesn't make any difference. Let me add so just quickly something to what I was saying before. When I was talking about the resilience of things like gender expression, and gender identity, I meant at the individual level and not in conformity with prevailing norms and prejudices about what's proper to masculine, feminine, men, women, so on. So I just want to make it clear that what I was defending okay. was a kind of, it's really about human nature at the individual level. What's always been the case is people have had, I think, um, probably fairly resilient either sexual orientations or sense of gender identities. And it's always been true. So that's not very new and maybe not likely to change thanks to um, abstract thinking and reflection and d deliberate attempts to change stuff. Right. You would need to fall in love. You'd need to fall in love to change your, like, like, I think that's the kind of thing that could change your sexual orientation is if you found a person who you really fell in love with and they were whatever, if you were 
if you were straight, if they were the same gender, or if you were gay, if they were a different gender? It's possible. You know, the funny thing is, as, as advanced as we think we are, I think we don't even really know this. I think we actually don't really have any clear idea about the innateness or how early in life these things tend to get settled. But they can get kind of settled in the way your native language or your accent gets settled. Uh, So it's harder and harder to change it as you age. I suspect that a lot of these things work like that. I don't know, though. Who knows? And so, but I didn't mean to be arguing that any any kind of traditional stereotypes about any of these categories are going to be vindicated in the long run. I mean, because at that level, yeah, there's a lot of confusion and deliberate ignorance and... Yeah, and lying. Yeah. So let's loop back because we're sort of coming to the end of our hour. Are we trapped by tradition? What's the answer? Ah, I... Are we going to vote? No, you're just going to say it. You're just going to say it. <laughs> so uh, here's what I... Let me propose this. I think there's a way in which we can't escape from tradition, but I don't think we have to feel trapped by it any more than we can't escape gravity. But you don't have to feel trapped by gravity. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful thing that you can jump and come back down to the earth. And so that's how I think it is. It's a, it's like a gravitational force that there's no getting away from. Yeah, that, that's a great way of putting it. I, I, might, I was trying to think of a good metaphor. And I might say we're not trapped by tradition unless birds are trapped by wings. Okay. So people should not think that the path to freedom is by abolishing tradition, but by realizing the resources for transformation that are in the tradition. Is that? I'd say so. That's, I like that's that. a yeah. good start. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll see. We yeah. solved the problem. Today. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> calm. I'm much more calm than I, I started this morning. So thank you. Um, okay. I, I think, I think this is a, a good topic and I'm happy we spoke about it. Yeah, me too. Thank you, Brian, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on. Yes, thanks for joining us, Brian. Great show. Okay. Okay. Thanks Thanks for joining. And uh, and this is the Terrifying Questions podcast. So, so listen next week. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by me, Taylor Carmen. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Terrifying Questions.